Oh God, we understand that it is a life of self-renouncing love that sets us free. So many of us remember the days of bondage. So many of us remember the times when we knew no freedom brought us by Christ. We knew that we chased after every God that the media told us was important. We knew about uh, all the things that were supposed to satisfy us and fill us up and make us happy. And um, all of them, all of them alike failed. And then we heard of the liberating gospel that Jesus Christ has died to set us free, that he transferred us from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, and now we are people brand new, bought with a price, purchased with blood, and now we are free to be what you designed us to be and enjoy that which is deeply rich and profound and meaningful. Father, for all my brothers and sisters who've come in here this morning, who have, who have discovered that the things that they thought would please them and make them whole haven't, I pray that you will show us that the only God there is worth worshiping is the one who is thrice holy, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and that we are your creation. It is your it is your world, O oh God, and we are players in it. And our greatest good comes from setting our hearts and minds to chase after things heavenly. Now, Father, as we gather for a Sunday morning to spend an hour concentrating on holy things, we pray that the Spirit of God might fall fresh upon us both speaker and listener, might we all walk out of here knowing that we've heard something that came from heaven. Uh, guard the speaker, O oh God. They call him reverend around here, and he is as sinful as anybody else. And I pray, O oh God, that you will set him apart so what people might see is Jesus in all of his beauty. Now, Father, take our gifts Thank you for uh, the abundance that you've provided. Use it all, O oh God, for one reason, to bring glory to yourself. We exist for that, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the second chapter of the book of the second book of Luke. And we'll begin reading at verse 39. Acts chapter 2 at verse... Let's start reading in verse 40. What do you say? Acts 2, verse 40. You follow as I read. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 3,000 people respond in faith to Peter's first sermon. A church uh, that was 120 went to a church of 3,120 in a matter of minutes. This is a group of people who are officially designated for the first time in the New Testament as the church. And by uh, modern church growth standards, could be considered a mega church. Uh, I uh, don't know that you know that term, but there is a movement in evangelicalism called church growth. And um, they have their magazines and their seminars, etc. And they define a mega church as anything uh, that has 2,000 people a week that worships there. Well, uh, according to that definition, we have our first mega church here in Acts chapter 2. The text which follows the mention of those 3,000 provides for us, I think, a, a great deal of insight as to what the purest church looked like. And the further we've moved away from the first century church, the less pure the church has become. But this text gives us a, a, an insight as to what the purest church looked like, whether it's mega or non-mega, I don't think made any difference to them. Uh, and shouldn't to us. But it does give us a, an opportunity to find out what this church that had the least um, degree of uh, impurity looked like. Uh, I heard of a church in Texas uh, that was called the Today Church. And uh, now this, is, this is the honest truth, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and the agenda of the Today Church was messages and teachings about reincarnation, um, a study of the Great Pyramid, uh, numerology, and primal scream therapy. And uh, for that part of their worship service, they, they met in the two-year-old nursery, I suppose. Um, but that was called a church. Uh, there in Texas, another quite famous church here in the States began when its pastor stood on hundreds of doorsteps and asked the people who answered the front door, what do you want the church to do for you? Is that the way that, it, that you are supposed to begin a church? Or is there some timeless agenda, some mandate as to what the church is supposed to be and do and look like. Let me turn that question around just a little bit, because um, every Sunday morning we have people with us who are visiting. And some of you, and, and we're delighted to have you, and uh, I can't uh, say that to you often enough, that how delighted we are that you're visiting here. People who are, who are perhaps looking for a new church home, 
Um, and I don't envy you. That's not a fun process. As you know, I was a church shopper once. And you have to get the kids up and put them in a different nursery. And, uh, you know, it, it just is a hard process of looking for a church. But to, to you, I, I ask this. What are you looking for? What do you look for in a church when you're trying to find a church home? Uh, I had a pastor friend of mine uh, tell me a story where a young man in his congregation left the church and um, moved to another congregation. And, they, and he ran into him in a, in a grocery store. And so they were talking about uh, him leaving his former church. And he said, yes, well, pastor, the reason I left, and this is a quote at least from my pastor friend, uh, I found a church that better fits my lifestyle. Is that what you're doing? I mean, is that what, is that, is that what we're supposed to do? I mean, is it? I, are we looking for a church that's perhaps made in our image? I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that our text this morning gives us four fundamentals. Uh, four anchors uh, that keep us from drifting too far afield. There, there are four boundaries that, that form the framework of what every church should and must be. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the further we get away from this pattern, the further we get away from the purest church. Because Not, not to say that this one was perfect. But um, it was a lot closer to the, to the ideal than what we find 2,000 years later. Before we get to those four things that I want to show you uh, in verse 42, um, I, I want to introduce you to a, to a principle. A principle that's in our text. Um, because I think it's important in terms of understanding of all of Christian existence. 3,000 new Christians... And, and once we're told that 3,000 were joined the church, we are then immediately told what became true of those 3,000 people. Because, and, and here's the principle I want you to see, because you see, new life immediately expresses itself in positive expressions of faith. It's always true. New life always expresses itself immediately in positive expressions of faith. What were they here? Well, first of all, uh, negatively, I guess, they separated themselves from what they had been. And then positively, they joined the church. Um, Ask yourself, my friend, this question. Do I enjoy gathering with the people of God? Is that something that really is a piece of refreshment for me? It's a litmus test, ladies and gentlemen. I didn't say it's the litmus test, but it is a litmus test. Do you enjoy the people of God? Do you look look for occasions to be in their their presence and their, their, their fellowship? There was a story in the newspaper not too long ago about a man and his wife who wanted to get their... um, their, their new son christened. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me say before that uh, you christen a ship and you baptize a baby. But this couple um, wanted to get their son christened. And uh, the problem was that they attended no church. And so they, 
they approached a certain pastor about <laughs> christening their, their child, and uh, he refused them. Uh, but he went on to say, if you and your wife will um, um, participate in some instruction on baptism, so it is that you can know what it is that you're doing and the significance of this ordinance, uh, we can proceed with the, with the plans that you'd like. The father was absolutely outraged. And so was the, um, the uh, uh, newspaper writer who wrote this, and I'm quoting the newspaper writer at this point. He said, this request represents a last-ditch attempt to bring people into the church in exchange for priestly favors. <laughs> Boy, we've gotten desperate, haven't we? Uh, I've got a priestly favor that I can do for you, I guess. I, you know, I do get free parking at the hospitals, too. <laughs> One of those perks of being in the ministry, I guess. But um, whereas the, the author of the newspaper was angry, the father was even worse. And he says this, and I'm quoting, Although I am a Christian, I am strictly the non-church-going type, believing that most churchgoers are hypocrites and go merely for convention's sake. He's judged every one of you. We all know why you're here, according to this angry father. But I want you to look again with me at Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people are converted, and they willingly, regularly, joyfully, enthusiastically gather together as the people of God into this brand new institution called the church. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I probably have abused this pulpit on numerous occasions, but let me tell you one thing I am not guilty of. I am not guilty of ever chastising anyone for not coming to worship services. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, new life always immediately expresses itself in positive expressions of faith. If you came because I chastise you, then we don't get to see the positive expression of faith. I also want to point out, ladies and gentlemen, if your new life in Christ is something similar to these folks, you will crave the places where these four fundamentals of the church can be found. And you will crave the company of God's people. Here's a newsflash. God's people can be found in the church. Now, that's, my, that's this introductory principle that new life always expresses itself in positive expressions of faith. Always. They'll, they'll vary, they'll differ. But here, it was that these people formed themselves into a body that for the first time in the New Testament is called and designated the church. Four things that I want you to see... Um, and they're mentioned in verse 42. Let me read verse 42 for you again. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. The first anchor to the church, the first boundary, the first fundamental is apostolic proclamation. 
There was a new school that opened in Jerusalem on that day, and they had 3,000 brand new students who knew virtually nothing. But the Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. That is a fundamental, ladies and gentlemen. If, if, if our church is going to approach the purity of this one, then one thing that must anchor us is the continuous, steadfast devotion to apostolic proclamation. You know, we, we do do the same thing today in, in a somewhat different way, because trust me, I'm no apostle. But the written residue of the apostles' teaching is bound up in the 27 books of the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen. And a mark of a New Testament church is that they are continuously, steadfastly devoted to sitting beneath apostolic proclamation. And it's interesting, at least to me, ladies and gentlemen, that's the first thing mentioned. Because it is conceivable that the other three could exist apart from apostolic proclamation. You just wouldn't have a church. You'd have some kind of facsimile, but you wouldn't have a church. The first anchor, ladies and gentlemen, for the church is apostolic proclamation. And there's an application there for you and for me. The application for you is, Jesus says it twice. He says it in Luke 8. He says it in Mark 4. He says, take heed. Be very careful how you listen. Are you with me? Are you listening closely? Because I'm so profound. (laughs) No, ladies and gentlemen, but Jesus does tell you, when his truth is being proclaimed, take heed. Take heed how you listen. Be very careful how you hear. He says that twice. That's the application for you. There is an application for me as well. Do you remember, we'll get to it in a couple of months in Acts chapter 6, where there was a big brouhaha in the church, maybe the first one, because the Greek widows were not being given their portion of, their needs were not being met as compared to the Jewish widows. And so they came to the apostles, and the apostles, um, it's in Acts chapter 6, they said, we should not leave the word of God and serve tables, therefore appoint seven brethren. And uh, because we are going to devote ourselves, give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that's when the deacons, the office of deacons, was created. Because certain uh, administrative needs had arisen. But the apostles said, they, we cannot. It's not good for us to leave the word. And um, we're going to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And I, and I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I have erred there more than you know. Sticking my dirty little fingers into things that shouldn't be, I shouldn't be in. Because very honestly, what I'm supposed to be doing is giving myself to prayer and the ministry of the word as well. And I do want you to know that the elders of this church are constantly reminding me, get back in your office. We don't pay you to do that. We pay you because, not because we value you, Jimmy Young, but because we value apostolic proclamation. Because we know we need that as the people of God. Now, get away from that and get back to giving yourself to prayer in the ministry of the Word. Because, ladies and gentlemen, that is 
the first fundamental in the, uh, in the church that is outlined for you in Acts chapter 2. The second thing that is mentioned is fellowship. Unfortunately, that is a word that perhaps has been lost to us forever. Um, <laughs> I had a young man tell me one time that his Sunday school teacher defined fellowship as a bunch of fellows in the same ship. Um, you know, in the church today, we speak of having a church fellowship, which normally implies some kind of chips and dip and processed cheese and rotel tomatoes. And uh, neglecting the fellowship means that somebody forgot to bring the Tostitos. But folks, what makes us different from a country club? I, I want to assure you that there is... Nothing sentimental in this word fellowship. It is, of course, the Greek word koinonia. It's the word that is mentioned some 18 times in the New Testament. And, and it has to do with commonality. If you'll notice in your text, verse 44, there is a prepositional phrase in common uh, in verse 44. Well, it's the same Greek word in common is translated fellowship in verse 42, koina and koinonia. Because it has to do with commonality, a shared commonality that we're supposed to have. You know, gang, of, of the four words, that is my favorite. Um, you, that might surprise some of you. Maybe some of you thought that my favorite would be uh, apostolic proclamation. But no. And I'll tell you why, but this fellowship thing is my favorite idea of these four. Um, because it describes something that's supposed to be true about you and me. It, it, we, we talk about having fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Gang, what the thing that draws us together is not uh, that we all share the same similarities in personality. God forbid. What draws us together is a commonality in Christ, that we have become members of the same family. The same life of the same God flows through our veins. Christians rejoice in the same Savior. Different personalities, different temperaments, indeed. Let me give you what I think is the classic illustration of that point in the New Testament. Do you remember the, the apostolic band that consisted of 12? Remember those guys? The apostles, the twelve apostles, you know those guys. Well, there's one guy in there, and his name was Matthew, and his profession was that he was a tax gatherer. Remember him? There was another guy in that same apostolic band, his name was Simon the Zealot. Do you know what the zealot means? That Simon was a part of a political movement, an underground political movement there in Palestine. And its sole reason for existence was to rid Palestine of Roman occupation. They despised Romans. And what was Matthew? Matthew was a collaborator. Matthew was one who helped the Romans gather taxes. Or the Romans helped him gather taxes so they could send back to Rome. These two men couldn't have been further apart. Politically, socially, uh, every other way. It would be like, but this illustration falls far short, it would be like putting a liberal Democrat pro-abortion into the same Bible study with a conservative Republican 
who is pro-life. But even that falls short, ladies and gentlemen. Here's two people who are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. But because they have found forgiveness in Christ, they've been joined into koinonia. Oh, I love that idea. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how you blew it. But I know this. You blew it. I know you did. I know you've got things that you hadn't shared with me or anybody else. I know you did because we all live in the same world and deal with the same flesh and, uh, and run up against the same devil. I know you blew it. We all blew it. James says we stumble in many ways. Oh, boy, is that an understatement? We all stumble, but there are some within the body of Christ who feel like their stumbling is not quite as bad as the other person's stumbling, and so they sit in a posture of uh, examining and critiquing. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that couldn't be anything worse to koinonia. Guys, guys, listen to me. We all blew it. We're all failures. And the sooner we get used to that fact, the better off we're going to get along. We all blew it. You blew it on this end of the spectrum. I blew it on that end of the spectrum. But because we have the same life of the same God flowing in our souls, it's brought us into a a bond, a commonality in Christ. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, we all rejoice. Together, in the midst of monumental differences. This text says that they even, you know, they lived together. They, uh, they shared things in common. Um, and the Bible, by the way, does not require us living in a commune. But it does require generosity. Because we've all... We've all found the same Savior. And it's, all, it's brought us into the same family. And by the Holy Ghost of God, it is producing koinonia, a commonality. I don't care how you blew it. I don't care what you've done. Jesus will forgive you. And, and I'm supposed to, too. You know what I've done? <laughs> I can't tell you from the pulpit. My wife's here. But ladies and gentlemen, we share a commonality in Christ. That's what this fellowship, it has nothing to do with Tostitos. It has to do with new life flowing through our souls. That's something that they were continually, steadfastly devoted to. There was a, I found this, um, a man has uh, written a parody about the, the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. You remember that song that we used to Onward Christian Soldiers. Remember that one? Well, he's written a parody of, really, I think it's uh, stanza number two. And here's, here's what he wrote. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. We are all divided. 
many bodies we strong on basic doctrine, weak on charity. Is that who we are? <laughs> oh, my friends, he has encapsulated a, a, a misunderstanding of what is koinonia. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the same Jesus that purchased or paid for your sin paid for mine. And it has drawn us together. I love that. I love that, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing can accomplish that except Jesus Christ. Nothing can enable us to look beyond our differences and love. Nothing can do that. Nothing. Except koinonia. I want you to also once again notice the order because I think it's important. Koinonia cannot be organized. It cannot be synthesized or energized or scheduled. It is something that grows out of apostolic proclamation. Thirdly, we've got to move quick, but the breaking of bread, which is really the, the, perhaps the strangest of the four, at least for me, uh, the commentaries just knocked themselves out trying to figure out whether he was referring to a meal or whether they were referring to the Lord's Supper. But one of the commentaries, a guy by the name of F.F. Bruce, said something that I, I, I agree with. He said it was a reference to both. And that what would happen is that they would all, from house to house, sit down and, uh, and, and enjoy a meal together. And when they had finished, they'd clean off the table and one of the apostles would grab a loaf of bread. And he would stand up in front of them and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Because in those table fellowships, ladies and gentlemen, there was to be the constant reminder of the sin-bearing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Could, could I insert this piece of application at this point? I, I've, I've saved it for this point, but let me ask you this. Are you in a grace group? You know, grace groups are a core value here at Grace Event, and they're a core value for a reason. Because I want to suggest to you that those first three items really can't take place any place else other than a grace group. Oh, you can have apostolic proclamation, and I hope that's what you're getting right now. You can have theme and fellowship in your Sunday school class, but you don't break bread together. Tonight in my home, there will be 22 people. And we'll have a meal together. And we'll study the Bible together. And we will enjoy the richness of each other's fellowship. And we won't have any Tostitos. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're not doing that, I say to you, you are not a part of something that is New Testament foundational to the church. Because these three things cannot take place on a Sunday morning. They can take place, however, in a grace group. And I couldn't exhort you any more strenuously than to find a place where these three things at least are going on. There's a fourth that's mentioned, of course, and it has to do with prayer. And, and I very, there, there are seven different words in the New Testament that uh, are, are translated prayer. And this is the one that's the broadest. It's the, uh, it's the most inclusive of the seven words. 
But I, I want to suggest to you that we are here at Grace Day and making some progress under the leadership of Jeff Simons. We are making some progress in terms of calling our people to prayer and organizing them to pray. But it would be fatal to us forever for, if we ever stepped back and said, okay, that's enough. There's still more needed, far more, so that we can be this. Now, I, I told you there was four fundamentals. I want to suggest to you that there is a fifth. It is implied. It's not in verse 42, but I want to suggest to you further that you cannot separate verse 42 from verse 47. And the fifth fundamental of the church is that she is devoted to outreach. Look at verse, what verse, verse 47 says. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The book of Acts, ladies and gentlemen, is governed, is governed by one dominant, overruling, all-controlling motif. The whole book is. And that motif is... The expansion of the kingdom of God through the witness of God's people and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you see here. You see the Lord doing it. He uses fallible instruments like us. The Lord added to the church. The Lord is doing this great thing using Christians. He's doing it daily, the text says. He's not doing it just on Sundays and at the missions conference. And interestingly enough, ladies and gentlemen, notice this in verse 47. He only added to the church those who had been first saved. But nor did he save them without adding them to the church. My brother and sister in Christ, do you have a burden for lost men? I pray for you probably five times a week asking God to give it to you and give me one too. Do you go to God with the souls of men on your heart? Do you know what six for six is? Are there specific non-Christians that you're praying for? Because, ladies and gentlemen, I'm convinced that um, one of the earmarks of the early church is that she was gripped with her sense of duty and responsibility to reach lost men. I close with this. Did you notice in verse 47... That it says, praising God and having favor with all the people. The church. The church had favor with all the people. She doesn't anymore. <laughs> In fact, if she's got anything, she's got contempt. That is, the world basically holds us in contempt. By the way, did you know that the number of mega churches in America is soaring? We're getting close. We may one day soon be a megachurch. The number of megachurches in America is soaring. And at the same time, overall church attendance in America is declining. Figure that one out. When did we lose favor with all the people, ladies and gentlemen? I'll tell you what I think. We lost favor with all the people when we departed from the model that we get in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. These marks of the infant church didn't kind of drop away as we matured. We didn't outgrow them. And oh, my friend, my, I long to see God replace favor with all the people with the contempt that we now enjoy. 
And the only way that I know that has some kind of divine sanction placed upon it to restore that favor for the church is to use that model. How are we doing? Oh, my friends, we've got a long way to go. Long way to go. But that's what we're after. Our Father, I do pray that your uh, people will be reminded uh, not so much through uh, three points in a poem, but, but they might be reminded by staring at your word all over again and submitting themselves to that, that they might be reminded that the church is not any old thing that we thought she should be. The church is an institution that has some, it, it has some mandates that originated in heaven, that were entrusted to us through apostolic proclamation. And that our only choice, our only choice is to return to this model and to do our best in the power of the Holy Spirit to produce that which will find favor in all, with all the people. Not because we long for the favor, but because we long to see Christ glorified in our midst. Father, if you have led people to us this morning who have not yet met our Savior, if they are here as people who have not embraced the beautiful Savior, might they see Him in all of His loveliness this morning and walk out of here knowing that the greatest need that they have is a need for Jesus Christ. We pray, of course, in His name. Amen.